Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with seven-time world champion adventure racer, Nathan Favai. Nathan Favai, thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's worked out well. We've sort of been, you're obviously based in Motueka, is it right? Yeah, just south of, well, what would it be? Not south, it must be east of Motueka. Yeah. So on the Nelson side of Motueka, so looking out over Tasman Bay and Nelson City, it's good. Nice spot in the world. It is a very good spot. Yeah, we feel very lucky to be living where we are. I mean, I think that's the same for just about anywhere in New Zealand. Wherever you are, you're close to something pretty amazing, I think. Yeah, we take it for granted a bit sometimes, but um, yeah, especially we've got a stunning day today. It's a, you know, a privilege to have you here. And um, I guess I kind of want to start by sort of just qualifying or quantifying what it is you actually do, because you can say things like, you know, adventure racing, and then obviously you're a world champion, a seven-time world champion, but there's going to be people listening who aren't going to sort of know, you know, I want to put it in perspective right from the start so we know what we're talking about. So... Can you, I guess, start with telling us what an adventure race is? An adventure race is a multi-discipline sporting event and it can involve a number of different outdoor sporting events. I once heard a description saying that as long as it doesn't require a motor and a fuel, then it can be used in an adventure race. So essentially human-powered transport. What that generally means in most adventure races is there'll be a water discipline, so rafting or kayaking are the most common ones, sometimes stand-up paddleboarding, and then there'll be hiking, Americans call it trekking, we call it tramping, or trail running, depends on what stage of the race it is or what length the race is, and then mountain biking. So the core disciplines are generally kayaking, mountain biking, and hiking, they're your three ones. It's a team sport. Um, there are individual event races, but generally it is a team sport and was designed as a team sport. It actually started in New Zealand in 1989. So it was organised by a French group of people and they came up with this concept of a team traversing an area of wilderness using a number of different modes of human transport. Actually, I could probably just back up a wee bit and, and say where that even came from, where that idea came from. It was a group of French people that used to work on the Paris Dakar rally, so yeah. a motorsport event. Mm-hmm. And in that rally, I don't know that much about it, but I've seen it on television a couple of times. So that's essentially a multi-day event. It's a team event, and they're racing motorbikes and jeeps and trucks and all these different things from Paris and, you know, into Africa. And it was during one of those events where, and they're quite ahead of their time, this is back in the 80s, that a group of people and a particular guy's name was Gerard Fusal said, this is a pretty adventurous event, but think of all the sort of fuel and I guess resources that we're using. Mm-hmm. You've got tyres for all these trucks and obviously all the diesel and petrol and the various things. And they were like, imagine if we did something like this, but it was only human powered, you know, just use people own energy really, bikes and kites and yeah. those things. So that's how it came about. So they, Decided to organise essentially a four or five day expedition, uh, human powered team and teams would have to navigate through the terrain just using a map and compass, traditional sort of navigational tools. So they decided they're going to do it and then they decided, well, where is the best place in the world to actually do this? And they decided it would be New Zealand. So the first event race was actually held here 
in New Zealand in the 1989. And not that long ago, eh? Like it's obviously quite a new discipline. Well, sport concept idea, really. It is, it is. So I guess that's uh, 30 years, just over 30 years ago. So it is a young sport. And yeah, it's pretty much grown from there. So it started with what we now call expedition length racing. Uh, which is obviously the long courses, and they can be anywhere between sort of 300 to 1,000 kilometres, really. And now there's events for everyone. So there's adventure races for kids, for women, for just weekend warriors, anywhere from literally a few hours right up to the races that can last up to a week. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, the guts of it. And the team normally is mixed gender. In traditional event racing, it's a mixed gender team. And the whole team have to do all the stages. So they actually travel as a, a little mimi, but the whole race. It's not a relay where people tag in and out. Yeah, yeah. And so um, some of the stuff you do is is definitely, at the, or all of the stuff you do by the sound of it is at the higher end of the distances and stuff. So seven-time world champion now? Yes, just recently. Yeah, just recently. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so the, the world champion races, what sort of distances are those? So the world champs, well, all adventure races typically are more measured by time. So for the world champs, the organisers or course designers are tasked with organising a course that will be a winning time of somewhere between 100 and 120 hours. So that's generally around that four, pushing up to five day mark. The distances are sort of less of a focus because it depends so much on the terrain. For example, you know, I've raced in the Swiss Alps and you can do like a 100-hour race there and only do, say, 300 kilometres. Or you might be racing across the plains of Tibet and you do the same time but cover a 1,000 kilometres. So they tend to be less about the distance and more about the time. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, they're, they're generally around five 600 kilometres is probably a common distance Distance. for an expedition race yeah and around that sort of 100 hours and obviously if you're you're winning it you're coming in around that 100 hour mark generally typically yeah and some races will be longer as well uh, and they will often let you know like sometimes the terrain is just so epic that the course designers will look there's so much good stuff here that you want to see that we're going to make the race longer the god zone is an example of that the new zealand adventure race the last couple of god zones have been sort of six seven day races uh, just the nature of the courses, they've decided that it's worth having a longer race, uh, yeah. have people out there seeing more, doing more. And obviously you're very accustomed to that being normal now, but that, <laughs> I'm going to say 99% of people listening are, you know, the thought of a seven or eight day or a five or six or seven day race is still a crazy concept, like it is to me. I guess it is normal. I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't really... I guess it is just normal for, for me. But mm-hmm. I, I think as part of that, though, is I think that so many people could do that if that's what they chose to do. Mm-hmm. So it's not like there's this 1% of people that can do this and no one else can. It's just that at the moment there's this 1% of people who choose to do it yeah. and want to do it. Yeah, and put in the work for it, and I completely appreciate that. But, like, you know, to, to most of the population, like, you know, running a marathon is a pretty significant achievement, you know, and that might take three, four, five, six hours, you know, and, and we're talking about sort of, you know, 20 times that, you know, like it's – um and, you know, I don't know, this has sort of been a large part of your life, you know, and, and so um, it's, a, it's, it's certainly normalised, I guess, but there's just, um, you know, when I sort of came across you and when I um, learned about some of the stuff you're doing, I just, like, couldn't – 
compare them. And I guess you must still run into people like that, right? I, I guess so. Yeah, I, I understand that not everyone's into sports and activity and things. So for the, I guess for people who live a pretty sedentary lifestyle, then it is another sort of realm or sphere that they can't really comprehend. But for most people that are inter- involved in some sport in some capacity, whether competitive or not, but just active people, most of those people kind of get it. They sort of know that, you know, if, exactly what you said before, if you put the time and work into it and it's important to you, that's what you want to do, then, yeah, I think you can get out there and, and, and do those things. But comparing it to other sports, you know, I agree, like a marathon is a real tough event. And what I sort of find with events, and I do all sorts of events and have done all sorts of events, is, is that you tend to pace yourself for the task in front of you. I think a really good example is, a half, is the half marathon and the marathon. Like, I've run a few marathons, done heaps of half marathons. I mean, I run those distances all the time in training. But, you know, I've encouraged friends who have done, you know, some of them have done like 10, 20 half marathons. And I'll say to them, oh, you should do a full marathon sometime. You know, it's a good thing to do in your life. And they're like, oh, I always think I'll do a full, but every time I do a half, I just finish across the line and go, there's no way I could run that again. Yeah, but it's completely different. You know, you pace differently and your mindset's different. Your training's probably not all that different, but different. And, you know, I sort of say to them, if if you can do a half and if you just go slower and pace yourself more and you've trained a bit more, you're going to be able to run another 10K. And they usually agree that they could. So that you can usually get them to the point of going, well, admitting that they can run 30. I was going, well, if you can run 30, you're going to run 40. You're not going to pull out at 30K, you know. So I think it's just that thing about, setting your mindset at the start of what you want to do. I mean, I'll go and run, you know, 5K races and over summer just to, just for something to do. And at the end of those, I mean, I'm completely spent. You know, mm-hmm. I'm pretty much lying on the ground, panting, covered in <laughs> yeah. sweat. And, yeah, I, I guess the point I'm proud of I'm trying to make is that I, I think all races are hard if you push yourself. Yeah. Uh, whether you're running for 20 minutes or whether you're racing for five or six days. Yeah. Um, That's a really good point, actually. And I think that I always find, I mean, I do know any of the distances you do, but I've always sort of find, regardless of what you, you know, run, for example, the last 10% is always really hard, but it's because it's the way you framed it in your mind. Like if you go out to run, you know, a marathon or a half marathon, it's like, you know, I've, I've done a marathon and when you run a marathon, the first half marathon seems to just disappear, and you're like, "Oh my god!" Like you know, like. But when you run a half marathon, it takes, you know, you you you, you that, that again that last ten percent seems to really sort of be a, be a test of you. And I think that you're right; it really probably does come down to your mindset. And when you when you start a race that is you know 100 hours or 120 hours long, then you're probably thinking about things a lot differently than if it's a you know a four hour or five hour event. Exactly, it is exactly the same. So. The world champs this year for us, we knew it was going to be about a four-day winning time. I think the last three races our team has done in the last three years, there hasn't been much racing, obviously, due to COVID, but they have actually been six or seven-day races. So for us, it actually did feel like we were doing a half marathon. You know, So we were two days into the race and we're going, sweet, we're halfway yeah, through. Halfway. Whereas it's a d- diminished by comparison model because we're yeah. thinking to these other races we've recently done, two days is like, well... Are we a third of the way third of the way through yet? Maybe not. Yeah. So it is just that mindset, and and I think pacing yourself for what is in front of you. Yeah, 
Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, so, look, I just want to just go back to the start. Now we've sort of defined what it is and what it what it sort of means. Um, for you, it all sort of sounds like it at least started with running marathons when you were quite young. Is that right? No, not so much running marathons. I did run a few marathons when I was a teenager. I think it all started with, and I don't even really know why, where it came from, but I just started to develop this real curiosity around human endurance. I think probably where it did come from was, if I was to guess, it was through the outdoor education program at Nelson College. And I got first introduced to the program there. I went to prep school, so I was, I think, 10 years old when I went to Nelson College. And in Form 2 back then, I went on an outdoor education camp to the Matakitaki Valley, which is up behind Murchison, quite a quite an out there wilderness uh, retreat and Nelson College were running their outdoor education programs out of the centre and there was something that really struck a chord there for me, uh, being in the Mount Big Mountains and the wilderness rivers and out in the bush and going tramping and pushing yourself and I felt quite a strong connection to the wilderness areas but also I guess getting out and pushing yourself quite hard, like carrying your backpack to the top of a mountain. And I don't I don't really know why, but I just found it fascinating and enjoyed it and just that seeing what you could do. And that was probably the first time I think that I sort of if I trace back this kind of fascination with ultra endurance where it probably started. And then through my teenage years I kind of got a bit distracted and um, yeah, went off the rails slightly, I guess you could say. Nothing major, but just a little bit of a kind of <laughs> misorientation. As, as we all do probably yeah. in those years. That's what those years are for, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then in my teenage years, I sort of had the opportunity to sort of rediscover and reconnect with this sort of stuff. And, and that's really where it began as a late teenager. And that's when I ran a few marathons and I started getting out doing lots of um, tramping and exploring and then that led me up to sort of mountain biking. And then by now I'm essentially a late teenager, late teens. And that led me to the coast to coast. And then really the, the pathway's been since then up yeah. to now, really. Yeah. Weren't you quite a successful mountain biker before the multi-sport? Didn't you? When you, you represented New Zealand, did you qualify for the Olympics? Yes. So... Yeah, I was successful by New Zealand standards. Uh, I was ranked number two in New Zealand uh, for elite men cross-country racing. I qualified for the Olympics in 1996. So I raced a number of years uh, internationally, mm-hmm. racing um, semi-professionally. I was pretty lucky, actually. Uh, I won the New Zealand junior title uh, to begin with, and then I've won South Island champs a number of times. I, w- I was actually pretty successful mountain bike racer, mm. <laughs> to be fair. And... Prior to that, though, I had dabbled in multi-sport. So I had done the coast-to-coast two-day race a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I decided to focus on mountain biking yeah. for a number of years. And that my mountain bike years were pretty much about 1990 through to 1996. And then there was a little bit of a, I don't know, it's a long story, a bit of a debacle around the Olympics in 96. And I actually got quite disillusioned with mountain biking after that and quit mountain bike racing. And I was quite happy to quit. I was frustrated with how the whole Olympic thing was a bit of a saga. But I was I was, e- I was equally keen to get it back into multi-sport. Mm-hmm. I was 
really interested in coast to coast and just doing more different sports actually yeah you know, obviously mountain biking all you do is bike uh, yeah. I was quite keen to get back trail running and in kayaking and doing different things so then I, I focused on coast to coast for a couple of years mm-hmm. I essentially 99 98 99 that period and that's when I started event racing my yeah. first event race I did was in 1999 yeah and you got you got second in the first, your coast to coast second and third in a couple of years I think yeah, in the other order, I think. The first year I went to Longest Day, I just wanted to see where I was mm-hmm. on the benchmark of things. I knew I'd be competitive. I'd come from elite-level mountain bike racing, mm-hmm. so I knew I was fit and strong. Uh, I knew I'd be without a doubt. I mean, I wasn't being cocky, but yeah. I knew I'd. no one in multi-sport would be able to ride a bike as fast as I could. Yeah. I mean, that was just the reality of yes, I'd just yeah, come yeah, from yeah. high-performance cycling. So the biking was tick that box. And then the running I was always confident with because even during my mountain bike years, I was still going tramping in my off-season and doing trail running. Like, I've always enjoyed trail running. So and back in those days, um, yeah, mount, trail running was perceived as quite good cross-training for mountain biking. It probably still is. Um, but my first coast-to-coast that I did in 1991 as a teenager, I actually set a new record for the mountain run over Goat Pass. So... When I went back to the coast to coast in 1998, you know, obviously I was a cyclist and I knew I could run faster over that mountain because I'd done it before. And the other thing was is that I had been working uh, to supplement my mountain bike career as a sea kayaking guide and a whitewater kayaking instructor. So I was a paddler as well. And with the sea kayaking, I sort of had the endurance paddling and from the whitewater, I had the skill base. So a lot of coast-to-coasters, if they listen to this show, a lot of them will know that they freak out about the river. Kayak, yeah. Um, whereas for me, there was no, this is, yeah. like, this is like an easy river. Yes. That, that, that there's no. So I guess I went into that race feeling uh, pretty confident. Yeah. The only thing that was probably a bit of a question mark for me was how good are the other guys? Mm-hmm. And the other question mark was can I race for, you know, 10 or 11 hours or whatever it is? successfully mm-hmm. so anyway cut a long story short well actually i've told you a long story so yeah. here's the short story yeah. um i got third that year yeah uh and and i went into it with a pretty open mind and then yeah the following year i decided to go back and try and win it and gave it a crack but didn't quite win it i got second that year yeah and um and then where to after the obviously i mean it kind of sounds like that you were sort of the everything was leading to adventure racing right you sort of had this you know you're obviously a very good mountain biker um you love this the connection with the outdoors and the wilderness and you sort of done a lot of kayaking and stuff all this you know you go out you love the adventure you love the pushing yourself it sort of seems like it was sort of funneling you in this direction and then you sort of do the coast to coast you're obviously fairly good at it and then what was the sort of next step from there it is a natural progression, I think, for a lot of adventure racers or multi-sporters to go into the expedition length racing. So coast to coast, if you're competitive, it's going to take you about somewhere between 10 and 11 hours, depending on the weather conditions. So after that 1999 race, I had gone into that race knowing that this was my one shot at trying to win the coast to coast. I didn't want to be someone who spent sort of four or five years of their life trying to win a race. I was like keen to give it a go and I wanted to cross the finish line and know that I'd given it a good go. But I knew that after that I wanted to go adventure racing and that that was going to be my focus, which is exactly what I did. So I did the coast to coast and then I switched to expedition length racing 
the multi multi um, day stuff. And the reason for that was is that a couple of reasons. One is I sort of saw that as the ultimate challenge, and I think you did right in that I had almost by accident been training, preparing myself over a decade for adventure racing without actually realizing it. So what that meant was is that when I first went to an expedition length racing, similar to the Coast to Coast in many ways, I really wasn't that intimidated by it. I was like, I can see how you can do this. There was certain parts of it that were quite mysterious to me and I was, just to be honest, I was a little bit nervous about. But in terms of the skills and the, you know, going for long days in the hills and backing up all this stuff, I mean, that's the kind of stuff I was doing for fun. And so I wasn't really too concerned about whether I could finish one of these or not. It was just whether I could be competitive. But the underlying all that was is that I had other motives. One was is that I saw that there was potential to have a career as an event racer. And the other one was is that I could see that there were some opportunities to travel the world to some really interesting places. Mm-hmm. And back then, uh, travel was super exciting, you know, travelling all around the world to these different places. I mean, we were pretty naive back then. We didn't really know too much about climate change and the impact of long-haul flying on the environment. So it was sort of fair game, you know, try and get it around the world as much as you could. Yeah. And was Southern Traverse your sort of first – I mean, you said you're sort of trying to – you knew the distance was no problem. It was really trying to see if you could be competitive and then you won the Southern Traverse. So that was the first sort of one where you're like, all right, I like this, I enjoy it, and it appears I'm pretty good at it. Was that right? That's right. Yep. So we put together a team. I mean, it was a competitive team, and I reason why I chose Southern Traverse that year. I could have done it a few years earlier, but I was quite, you know, obviously I was mountain involved mountain biking and multi-sport. But the race came to Nelson that year in 1999, which is my home ground. So we had a huge hometown advantage. Two of us and the team were from Nelson, so we hardly needed to get our maps out. And we won that race, and then, yeah, from there, it's it was easy to jump from one thing to the next. Essentially, you know, we're we qualified for the world champs, and then Southern Traverse, and then once you get good at event racing, you start getting invitations from other mm-hmm. teams to go and race, yeah, international teams as well. Yeah. Event racing at the top level is a little bit like America's Cup sailing. It's not a pure international sport. A lot of the top teams are more just corporate syndicates. So it's not necessarily America versus Spain versus New Zealand. It's more like Nokia versus Nike versus Avaya versus. Yeah. So there are some nationality rules um, similar to most international sports. But I, you know, I have raced in a few international teams over the years. Yeah. In my early years. And that was more of a chance just to get experience and and travel to interesting places. Yeah. You know, and you fast forward to now, you know, like I if you look at your website, you know, and you're a very humble man, but you know, you've got some significant achievements on there. You know, like the the I I, did, I sort of stopped counting after um, you know, there's just so many first places, second places, third places in all different parts of the world. You know, when did you realized that you were actually really good at this like this is a because you know you have to be honest and kiwis we're not good at it right we're not good at saying i'm actually really good at this but you know you're a you're you i don't know what the the you know that many titles you are probably one of the best in the world that's ever been in this sport so when did you realize that this is this is really what you're good at uh i guess well the first thing i need i really need to say up front is is that event racing is a team sport so all those results you're referring to, and thank you, that's very, uh, 
it is it's really nice to hear that and, and be acknowledged for those performances. But none of those performances would would I would have had without the teams that I were in. So I think um, yeah, the, I've been fortunate to be in amazing teams for just about my whole event racing career, and that's quite unique. A lot of people don't have that opportunity; they can't sort of step into a top team you know, from their first race. A few people can, but it's not a normal sort of pathway. But I think, to be, if I was to be completely honest, I knew before I even started that this was a sport that I could be really good at. And it, it, it was more just looking at what I'd done up mm. until that point. And the key really was to, to be very successful at that sport was to, to be in a really good team or to, or to build a really good team and and to have a really good support, um, sponsorship support. So once those things lined up, but I think, you know, it's not easy and to to just dominate, I guess, a sport. And on my website, there are other races in there. That's not every race I've done. Yes, I can imagine. So, yeah, so, yeah. so we have, you know, we've... Actually, to be honest, we haven't actually not finished many races, but there's been a couple that we haven't finished. But there was a there was a pathway, and during that pathway, like, we had a lot of disappointment and failure. And uh, from those races, you know, we sort of learned from them and grew from them. And very normal sort of pathway, I guess, mm. to the top. But uh, largely, it has been it has been a very successful um, few decades of racing. Like most of the time our team has been, as, as you alluded to, has been on the podium. Mm. And more often than not, we've, we've certainly in the last, certainly in the last decade, we've, mm. we've won just about every race that we've, we've started. And that's, you know, that's unusual for any endeavour pursuit, right? You know, like for, for any, you know, if you, you take it across any sport, any, you know, any sort of pursuit to, to be at the top of the, of the world for, you know, for, for such a long time is unusual. What do you think has, has made you or your team so good at it? I think there's a number of things. Uh, and again, it's only sort of my speculation or, or guessing. I, I think a lot of it is experience. So, and, and, and that's important to acknowledge, I think, because what tends to happen in a lot of sports is you get these sort of generational periods moving through because obviously athletes have got a, a lifespan. <laughs> you know, you can't, yeah, I guess it's easy in New Zealand to kind of use All Blacks as a comparison, but, you know, the average lifespan of an All Black, I imagine, is probably no more than probably 10 years. You'd probably be lucky if you... You'd be, you'd be very lucky. Yeah, exactly. 10 years, yeah. So... If you imagine that in the All Blacks, if you could have someone like Richie McCaw, for example, playing for 20 years at the same, essentially at a very similar ability and fitness, then that experience is, just becomes incredibly valuable to the team. And, and that's essentially what's happened in event racing at the moment is our team, you know, especially with me and the team, we're, we're sort of got over 20 years of, well, I've got over 20 years of experience in this sport. So what's happened is, is that, most of the people that I raced against in what, the first 10 years of my career, they've, they've retired and moved on. So there's a whole new group of people that have come through. Um, and my teammates kind of sort of blend a bit in the middle. So, so as a team, we have collectively just got 
way more race experience than most of the other teams that we're actually racing against these days. And that's a huge advantage because a lot of them are younger teams. Mm-hmm. And so that's important. That, that's a key thing. And then I think with that experience, you sort of go, well, why, what is experience? So what is it that you guys have got that others don't have? And I think it's a number of different things. I think it's, we really know how to train and prepare and use our time efficiently. So I think, you know, there's a lot of, well, efficiency is the right word, I think. There's so many efficiencies around that. And then within the race, we just know how to pace and strategize and essentially be able to look at a course and go, this is a, this is the part of the course that's going to be tricky. This is the part of the course we want to be in daylight. This is the part of the course where we want to be really, you know, careful on or we can really go fast on. All that decision-making we can have a lot of confidence in, There's, you know, which is stuff that we've just learned mm-hmm. over the years. And then I think beyond that is just having a really uh, high-performing team, and that probably just comes into your team culture and team values and a number of things around how we want to race, how we want to be as a team, how we want to communicate, how we want to interact. And we all have a shared vision. We're all highly competitive, obviously, but – we also want to, you know, really race well um, as good people and as good citizens and good ambassadors for the sport and all these different things. So you, you combine all these things together and all, you start to go, well, this team is actually going to be quite difficult to to challenge uh, because they have so many other things that no many, not many other teams have got. And the, and the last thing I'll say is is that there's also also some sort of legacy building and protecting. So when I started adventure racing, I started in 1999, so the sport had been going for 10 years. But before me, the Kiwi teams had done exceptionally well internationally. So as a young New Zealand adventure racer, for me it wasn't a matter of, oh, I want to get out onto the world circuit and see how well I could do. It was like, I, w- I want to get out to the world circuit and keep winning the races like the Kiwis that have come before me. Mm-hmm. And I think once you start getting that mindset and legacy going, it's sort of self builds on itself and perpetuates Mm -hmm. and that's probably a little bit what's happening now is is that the kiwis are like well our standard is to win international races and then with that mindset i think is quite valuable yeah i mean everything you just said is is is, um you know really interesting the the team thing and you're 100 percent right you know and and i've been obviously doing a bit of research but i sort of missed that that the you know you've got all these you know these these podium finishes, but it's all reality. It's all a team, and I think there's so many synergies in that because you said you know one of the the the, the key ingredients is being able to get the right people and the right team together, and then you know the right sort of sponsorship. And I think that that's synonymous with most things, right? You know, like I, I remember hearing Arnold Schwarzenegger talk, and he his, his uh, this talk was titled "There's No Such Thing as a Self-Made Man," and he was just talking about all the stuff that he'd achieved. And he only and and he gets and he talks about I certainly didn't do this by myself, and I certainly didn't become the governor of California without you know however many million people's votes or whatever it was. And um, and it's so true. The people that tend to do really well are actually the people that tend to be able to put a really good team around them, and and um, you know, and obviously be able to finance it, and then um, you know, put everyone in the right seats to do all their right stuff. So that's really interesting. And the other thing, you know, the experience thing you talked about, because um, one thing that we haven't even talked about in adventure racing is the fact that you're not following a course really. You know, as far as I'm aware, at least, is that. Um, you know, you sort of. I've seen some of the world champs. It appeared like you get the map about ninety minutes before the the starting gun. Is that right? 
It depends on the race. Uh, in this year's World Champs in Paraguay, which was in September, we got the course, yeah, literally that, I think, <clears throat> 90 minutes or two hours before the race. And then you pretty much get the maps, there's the course, you've got some time to plan your route through the course and then we're going to start you. In some races, they'll just give you the course essentially stage by stage or day by day. So it, it, we have done races before where they'll give us the first map and go, well, you're going to start with this trekking stage and once you finish this, we'll tell you what you're doing next. So we can be going through a course. This is not the, this is the least common way, but it does happen. So we can be going through a trekking stage and not knowing if we're going to be paddling or biking next. I mean, you can sort of guess because you know that, well, we're going to finish this at a road end or we're going to finish this at a edge of a river or a lake, but mm-hmm. it's not always the case. You yeah. know, we've had it before where we are finishing at a lake and a trekking stage and we go, well, we must be paddling next, but then you get there and they go, no, no, you're biking. There's a road there as well. So there's a bit of guesswork, but no, they generally give you the course as close to the start of the race as possible. And that, that has actually come about through modern day sort of technology and communication. So what they found a few years ago was is they would give people the course the day before, but teams would be up all night looking at Google Earth and Fat Map and all these different things, finding out you know, what is the latest, what's mm-hmm. what's the vegetation like there. And, and it kind of sort of detracts a bit from sort of the pure art of map and compass navigation. And the other one is, is that it can be a huge advantage if you've got time to be able to, you know, read online trip reports from other people that have travelled through the area, or, or even ring people that you know have been yeah. in there and stuff. So, they pretty much just give you the course now, yeah, and go, and yeah. then it's like, well, it's equal for everyone, and yeah. just just deal with what's in front of you. Yeah, and I guess that just adds a whole other element to it because you talked about the importance of having the right people in your team, and um, you know, when you're trying to navigate and make decisions. Um, in a group environment after days and days of, of sleep deprivation and, and, and ultra distance exercise, like it's a, that's a, you know, you're really relying on relationships to be strong in a situation like that, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, an adventure race, and you can imagine this, and you're living together for the best part of, you know, a week to 10 days because you, you're together, obviously traveling together to the race and then you're, staying together and then you're racing together and then traveling home. So the period, you know, it can be, you know, a couple of weeks of pretty intense living, but certainly during the race, uh, the rule is, is that we're not allowed to be any more than 50 meters apart during the whole week, which is quite a unique thing. Like that doesn't happen very often in life where you're pretty much bound to someone literally almost tied together for mm. four or five or six, seven days. And then you add to that, that you are doing something that at some point will challenge you and you it's inevitable that at some point you'll also go through levels of discomfort and suffering. <laughs> and so, yeah, you, people are pushed to their limit, even in a top team like ours. There's times out there where people have to dig really deep to keep moving forward. And so how those people behave and respond in those situations is very, very important because you can create conflict or animosity or turn into a dysfunctional team really quickly if people say the wrong things at the wrong time. So you need people that can obviously have a great attitude and be positive as much as possible, but also have the, I guess, intelligence and sensitivity to know that these thoughts I should just keep to myself right Mm -hmm. now. Um, These are definitely quiet thoughts, not ones to be spoken. And just the ability to 
obviously, you know, support those people through those times. But I guess what it, what it comes down to is just that overriding commitment to the pursuit of excellence. For our team, it's we have to do everything we can to be the best possible team we can be to get through this course as quickly as we can. In order to do that, that everything we do, every behaviour, every action, every, not necessarily thought, but everything you say, everything that happens within this intense 100 to 170 hours, it has to be helpful. It has to be in some way going towards the team goal. And if it's not, then it can't happen. And I think over the years, you know, we've developed this culture in the team where people are excellent at doing that, that everything is about moving forward and keeping on track or getting back on track. We get derailed, of course, but I think we're very, very good at accepting things have gone wrong and adjusting and finding solutions and getting getting back on track. Um, There was a documentary made of our team at the World Champs in 2018 in Reunion Island, and I thought... The documentary maker gave the doco an excellent title and it was called For the Team. And that was a phrase that they had picked up from interviewing our teammates, my teammates, that apparently all of us said that quite a few times that, you know, we were there for the team and we want to do the best for the team. So the team sort of became this this other being almost. Mm, Separate entity, yeah. Yeah. That the four of us were all were all believing in and putting our energy into and committing to, mm-hmm. and I mean it just exists in a cloud really, but we were there to serve the team, and uh, yeah, I thought I thought it was a great name. Yeah, how, how do you do that? How do you? I mean, obviously, I mean the team at your moment. How, how many? How have you been racing together for a long time? The the four of you. Yeah, we have what we call the core team, and we've been racing together now. Well, if we go back to the core team, we've been racing together for 11 years now. So we've all known each other and raced against each other. But in 2011, we basically came together for the world champs in Tasmania and Australia in 2011. And since then, there's only been one change to the core team. That was one of the guys I was racing with. He had a young family and a business, a gym actually, and um, just decided that, you know, he, he was a very good racer, um, won world champs and numerous other big races. But for him, it was like, oh, I just need to go and do some other stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so that was it. So, in 20, since 2013, our core team has stayed the same. Yeah. But we have had a few changes because our female and our team, Sophie Hart, who's a doctor, and Nelson Marlborough, she has taken some time out during those years to have children. She's got two young children. So, she's essentially gone out you know, um, had a child, <laughs> raised the child to a point where it can be reasonably self-sufficient. <laughs> yeah. And then she's come back and done a bit more racing and then she's gone away and had another child and then come back again. So so we have had some subbing in and out, but I guess in that situation, that to us, it hasn't felt like the team's really changed in any yeah, way. Of it's just sort of modified. And then, and then wider to that, we have a, you know, a, essentially a squad, an unofficial squad of probably mm-hmm. about seven or eight athletes that we kind of can pull on yeah. to bring in if if it is. Like I didn't go to the World Champs one year; I was just too busy. I think about four years ago or something, so yeah. someone took my place. So how how have you built that? I mean, the 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 insight from that documentary is interesting, right? Because you didn't even know you were doing it, but it was it was a result of 
of someone sitting down and talking to you on this whole idea of sort of for the team. You know, uh, you're the team captain, right? Correct. So how does that, how have you built that culture or has it evolved or, you know, is it intentional or is it something that's just sort of manifested by, you know, through what you've done? Because it's interesting and that's, that's sort of, the reason I'm focusing on it is because, you know, building a, a culture of excellence amongst the team, regardless of what you're doing, is almost the primary goal of any leader, right? Yeah, it is. I think so. Should be. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'd hope. I, I don't really know. I, I guess it's a question that other people would answer better than myself. Like you sort of said quite early on, you know, event racing to me or the expedition that's racing is quite normal. So for me, being team captain or in a leadership role, I just sort of do what feels normal to me. So I don't really know uh, yeah, what what it is that creates that team culture. I know that I've had a real commitment to that. And so if I was to perhaps expand on, you know, my values or my beliefs in, in leadership, I, I've really just been the leader that I would like to be led by. It's probably a good way of putting it. And so I know... You know, I've done lots of different things in my life and I've I've been a follower, you know, I've been under certain types of leadership over my life and some of the times I want to, the leadership I've been under I've enjoyed and some of it I haven't enjoyed. So I guess it's really important for leaders to play to their strengths and it's not going to be the same for everyone. But I think for me, and this, this I think has spilled over into our team culture, what's really important for me in leadership is a couple of things. If I was to use one word to describe my leadership style or something that how I want to be is, com- is composure. So for me, I've never really enjoyed being under leadership model when people panic and lose their cool and you know, lose their temper and throw chairs across rooms and things. So I've always had a lot of respect for people in the face of adversity and challenge who can just be really calm and composed and, and I admire that. And I go, I like how they handled that situation. So that's how I want to be. So for me, you know, I guess it's that that calm, cool, composed, almost nothing will shock me kind of mentality, uh, which I've used a lot in my parenting to success, I think. And with that, I think you do, if you get people, like-minded people around you, then you automatically start to earn respect from that because they obviously like that leadership style as well. Um, they don't want to be in a team with someone being high strung and panicking and things so so that's important and then to me the other thing that I've really liked in leaders is the people who have the ability to delegate and trust people to do other things like I've never been into I've never liked being micromanaged I hate it Um, and so I don't want to be that person either so if I ask someone to do a job it's because I believe they can do it and I'll just leave them to it and they may do it differently to how I want it. And now I'm starting to speak quite broadly yeah, around other stuff, but they may do it differently to how I wanted it done, but they're still going to do a good job and it's actually fine. So, you know, within the team, we, we have certain roles. You know, Chris is a navigator and Stu's a backup navigator and we have different areas of expertise. So people will step up at different times depending on what the discipline is. And Sophie's obviously a doctor, so she has a whole lot of medical knowledge that none of us have. So for me, it's about just letting... Well, it feels, it feels it is the common sense thing for me to, to do. Really, is to extract that expertise from my teammates and give them the opportunity to sort of play to their strengths. 
So you just start doing all this kind of stuff. And then the other thing that's really, really important for me is keeping things in perspective. Um, you know, I'm half Samoan, so I spent a lot of time when I was a younger child and over the years, you know, seeing firsthand what it's like for a young person looking at my cousins, really, growing up in Samoa. And while, while I think they have potential to have an amazing life there, it's not the life that I would choose because I just have so many luxuries in my life and opportunities. And so for me, not taking things for granted and keeping things in perspective is very, very important. And that, I think, is a really healthy mindset for high-performance competition because I think when you're in high-performance competition, it's very easy, easy to, for you to start to think that the outcome of this race is going to change the future of the world, whereas we all know it's not. So I think to better go into a big race and go, hey, look, I'd like to do really well in this race. I'd love to win it. It doesn't really matter if I don't. No one actually really probably even cares other than me. And having that perspective, I think, creates a really nice environment for a team to perform because you're not distracted by all the kind of the chatter that is often just in your head. And you can actually just get out there and, and actually enjoy each other's company and enjoy the environment, enjoy the challenge, enjoy the fact that someone else has organised this expedition for you and get out there and be appreciative and grateful for all those things. And I think it puts you in this really amazing performance state because essentially what you end up with a team is is that this is assuming everyone's trained is you know a team that's very relaxed but very but highly motivated, and that performance state is is uh, is an amazing thing to be a part of when it's working. It's addictive actually. It's why I'm still racing yeah. at fifty. Yeah, it's flow, isn't it? It's yeah, that, um, I've got. Stephen Kotler's book here somewhere. I don't know if you've read it, but what, no. you, what you've just described is that flow, that that perfect mix of uh, challenge and skills. Yes, you know when the when the skills you have and the challenge you're facing meet at that perfect intersection. Yes, and you find yourself in a state called flow. And if the, if the challenge is too high and your skills are too low, yes, it becomes stressful. Yes, if the challenge is too low and your skills are too high, it becomes boring. Yes, and yeah. So flow is that perfect. Totally in the middle, where yes. you just you're, you're perfectly engaged in the what's the challenge that's in front of you. It's perfectly matched to your skill set, and uh, and you become so entrenched in it that that's right. it's, uh, it's addictive. Yes, it is. And outdoor education flies a good word, good word for that. And outdoor education, we call it peak experience. Yeah, those things come together. Yeah, and that is when that's when the magic happens. Yeah, in, in outdoor education. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I mean the, the three things you've just sort of highlighted there. You know, composure. Um, delegation, maybe for uh, I think it's the right word, but sort of you know letting people you know um, play to their strengths, and then um, what was your third one? It was um, yeah, I can't yeah, they were re- yeah. Re- really interesting you know leadership insights and yeah. as a whole, and um, a cool way to look at it, you know, that as far as the you know trying to be the leader that you've enjoyed, and I think that's what everyone does, right? You sort of have, you have managers and over the years, and you sort of try and take the parts from the people that you've enjoyed and the and add those to your skill set and get rid of some of the ones you haven't enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, what about um, you did the eco challenge? Now that's that's sort of ta- air tagged as the toughest race on earth. Is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> is it marketing? Is it? Yeah, well, eco challenge world's toughest race. It is marketing. Yeah. It's. It is an expedition race. It's a legitimate expedition race. It's no different from the God Zone or from the Event Racing World Champs or one of the Event Racing World Series races or the different events you have. It's just, they just got that sort of tagline. But the event racing, you can never say that 
you know, there's one race is harder than the other because it all depends on the athlete and how they're feeling at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, what makes these races really hard is is not usually the stage or the course, it's how you actually feel. Yeah. And so, you know, we can go through a stage, after, we can do a race and we can be sitting down after the race having coffee a few days later just chatting about our experience. And someone could say, that mountain bike stage five, man, that was brutal. And someone in my team could say, actually, I really enjoyed that ride. I thought it was beautiful, wonderful. I felt great. (laughs) And so, yeah, yeah. yeah, but the World Eco Challenge World's Toughest Race, it it is more of a tagline. It was definitely a tough race, but not. Yeah, any different to the other races we do. Yeah, um, and so it was perspective was your other leadership thing that just popped into my yes, head. Yes, that's true. Into Good memory. Then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was Fiji that you did the eco race challenge. Is that right? Yes, the world toughest race. Yeah, twenty nineteen. So that race was quite interesting. Well, interesting if you're interested in the sport uh, because. The last Eco Challenge before that one was in 2002. It happened to be in Fiji as well. And then for various reasons, that race stopped. And then they brought it back in 2019. So, yeah, that was quite special for me because I had actually won the Eco Challenge in 2002. Mm-hmm. And then it went back, yeah. I don't know, 17 years yeah, later yeah. or something wow. with a different team yeah, and managed to win it again. Um, when we talk about things being like, do you set – is you're obviously very competitive, and and anyone who's who's successful generally has that sort of you know ingrained in them. Um, I had a guy on here called Andy Beal, and he's sort of a um, uh, uh, maybe in, compared to you, maybe a weekend warrior endurance sort of athlete, and he's done some amazing things. And um, he talked about how. We he has almost quote him. He said we constantly compare out ourselves at events to other people, and you know whether you come first or last is actually a function of who else is there rather than how well you've performed. And um, and I really like that. And and so I'm curious to sort of that's almost the opposite of competitiveness. Well, it's, it's kind of interwound a little bit, but you know at an event like this that you're talking about, you know, do you set yourself goals that you'd like to achieve this in and then are you happy if you achieve that regardless of your placing or are you, is, 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 is placing important or, or is it a mixture of both or? It'd be a mixture of both for me. I think over the years as an athlete, like anything, you grow and develop and there's probably even stages of development. In fact, I'm about ashamed to say that I've never actually researched this before. But I know when I was a junior athlete, a mountain biker, that I was racing for the glory. So I used to measure almost purely on performance. So for me, when I was a mountain bike racer in juniors, it was about winning the races because I wanted to get my name in the paper and I wanted to make the New Zealand team and I wanted to be the person that people were talking about. So it was very ego-driven and which is not a bad thing, uh, but it was it was sort of seeking that glory and, and approval. And there's probably some reasons behind that, and it's probably quite common. It's probably not uncommon, actually. Mm, I would agree, yeah. That um, as, as a young, you know, young Polynesian male growing up in a white town, that I wanted to, you know, earn people's respect, and I felt that was a good way of doing it. Yeah, yeah that's probably a simple, very simple answer for kind of a period of my life. But then... I think as you grow older, you become less about that. You know, it got to the point where I couldn't care less if 
if our race was documented in the media or not, I honestly couldn't care. You know, I just want to go out there and have the experience and be with my teammates and see a beautiful part of the world and, you know, that part of it. So, so and that's evolved. Like there was a period in my career when I was a professional athlete where it was about making money. Like, I mean, I'm trying to feed my family and, and build a, you know, build some wealth. So this is a very rare, this is a job for me mm-hmm. and sponsors like winners. So yeah. if you're not winning, then you are not getting paid. So, you know, there's different motivations throughout my career. But I think I think for now, and probably for a large part of, you know, my racing career over the last period, and I think this might answer your question, it may not, but it, it, for us, for me, it's very much performance-driven. So perhaps in a way I could even explain that a bit better is, is that we won the world champs in Ecuador in 2014 and none of us were actually that jubilant and it was really interesting because afterwards we sort of talked about it a bit but I think in many ways the sensation that we felt was more a sensation of relief rather than sort of victory and celebration and I think it's because it'd been a pretty strange race and we weren't really sure if we were that if we could if we were that proud in how we'd race, not that we'd done anything wrong, but it just it was it was it was just weird. And for me, it sort of showed me that what I took away from that was is that we're we're not actually purely results driven. I mean, any other team that had won that world champs, man, they would have been dining in on that still. But for us, it was kind of like, oh, that's a bit sort of almost disappointing. Um, you know that because I guess we hadn't raced like the team that we like to see ourselves as racing. And it was a lot of it was out of our control. To give you, I don't want to go into this, this gets too confusing, but what happened on the first night of the race is about 90% of the teams went up a road, though, a forbidden road. So they all got given a um, time penalty. So it completely changed the race because all of a sudden it was like we were one of the teams that didn't go up the forbidden road. And it, it was a mistake. They didn't intend to. But it just, at the start of a major race, it was just this weird thing that all of a sudden... Um, half well the majority of the field were kind mm. of almost out of the race and and that, that set off a, a whole chain of events that just made a really kind of strange yeah a strange race so so yeah for me i i'm definitely uh, if i think about my racing I, there's some races i go to and winning is the is the is the focus is the goal and that's largely because i think that is an easy way of measuring if we hit all our hit all our targets. And other times it won't be. It'll be like there's different goals in this race. We may win it, but we may not, and it doesn't mm-hmm. actually matter. Yeah. Um, you know, there's other things that we're trying to achieve. Yeah, it's just I mean, it's an interesting point, isn't it? It's like sometimes you can have the race of your life and you'd have you'd love it and enjoy every element of it and the team works well and everything goes well and everyone, you know, you come out of it, you know, just on a high and, and you might not place anywhere and then you've, you've you've just described the opposite of winning and not feeling that satisfied. Mm, and mm. it's an interesting thing. And I think, you know, age and wisdom and all that sort of stuff probably mm. play, a, you know, a lot of, you know, youth, you know, younger people, certainly it's about the, the glory and... Um, mm. But it's just an interesting way. You know, Hayden Patton, the rally driver, was on here, and he said um, something quite poignant. He said, um, "He said winnings 
No, he said, success is not winning, success is achieving our goals. And so for them, mm. you know, like there's so, obviously with the vehicles and bits and pieces, the, the, the cars, there's so much to it. So, he, you know, their goal might just be to finish the stage today, mm. you know, or whatever it is, because mm. they've had all this trouble. And, and and so he said, for us, winning is, is or, you know, the success is us finishing the stage or mm. is making this time or this point or the pit stop being under this, whatever it is, that's, mm. that's how they define it. And it's, you know, it wasn't really related to winning, but, you know, then obviously there's the competitive bone in all of our bodies that wants to win and then particularly when you are you know professional then, mm. then winning is a, is, mm. a, is a significantly um mm. you know more beneficial but uh, hey it's a, i don't know what the answer is maybe there's not an answer it's a bit of both probably for everyone i think so i mean i, I do a little bit of coaching uh, for a few athletes juniors and a few teams and one of the messages that i really like them to hear or focus on to me, it's more about the effort. And so the key things that I put in is it's, I don't put a big focus on winning because I actually don't think it's that important for most people. But what I think is important is putting in the effort of winning in your training and in your competition and then just being open to the possibility of winning. So I guess to me, I mean, I mean this is obviously for high performance sort of people I'm talking about yeah, referring yeah. to. A lot of some other people I help out in coach got no interest in winning at all. They just mm-hmm. want to finish the God's own race. Yeah. So they just want to know how do we meet all the cutoffs. And to them, that's their success. But yeah, the hot, but, but for a lot of the other people, I'll say, look, it's just, you know, it's the effort, it's the effort of winning and being op- being open to the opportunity of winning. That's probably all you really need to sort of focus on, I think. And mm-hmm. then the rest of it all comes down to the the controllables, you know, your training and nutrition and your recovery and your race strategy and your pacing and your ability to push through pain yeah. and discomfort and, you know, stay positive and self-talk and all those other sort of little things. But uh, I, I do totally believe that, you know, any athlete, you can have huge success in, in whatever event you're doing irrespective of where you place mm-hmm. because it's all about what happens in that race. Yeah. And um, and you're right. And who wins? It can have nothing to do with how well you perform. No, right. You know, like you could have the race of your life, and 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 the, there could be something completely outside of your control that affects you know a placing. But um, yeah, interesting nonetheless. And so a lot of that stuff you just you just listed then, um, you know, self talk and mental preparation. That's what I'm interested in. To, is 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 how do you? Obviously, there's a huge amount of physical preparation for for an event like that you compete in, but the mental component component of it is probably almost just as tough, I would imagine. Can you prepare for that or is it or is it literally about putting yourself in the situation that you're going to find yourself in and dealing with it then and so you're building up experience and practical sort of ways to help you deal with it? I think a bit of both. I think if you're doing the specific training for the event, then you will be developing mental and physical strength at the same time. So when I coach God's own teams, not all the time, but there will be periods in their training program where I'll design the program to, to actually push them more mentally than physically. And that might there might be two of those kind of bell curves in a training program. They don't really know it. They just think that it's not a secret. I would tell them if they wanted to know more information, but they would just look at it as peak volume of physical training. But for me, this is also (laughs) 
where you are going to basically be mentally tested and questioned because this is going to be hard. And I think by just continually doing that over a period of, you know, different events and years and you just, over a period of time, you just increase that mental tenacity and mental strength, how to deal with pushing through. So event racing is a hugely mental sport. I mean, obviously to be competitive and to finish a race, you need to have the physical capability, but most teams on the start line will have the physical capability. So then you've got to ask the question, well, why, why are some teams finishing days ahead of the other teams? Because you've all got physical capability. You've all got the best gear. You're all riding carbon fiber bikes. You've all got good sponsors. You've all got the right shoes. So what's the difference? And then I think, so it does come down to your team culture, your ability to work together as a team for a common goal and the individual's mental capacity, I guess, to be able to push through the guaranteed periods of suffering discomfort that are going to come your way and just have that, whatever it is, bit of mongrel in you, I guess. Yeah. All those intangibles, eh? It's interesting. I had... um Tim Bateman on here, he's a rugby player, and he interestingly said that, um, you know, he, you know, from a rugby point of view, the team doesn't get fitter or stronger week to week, right? There's no one mm. gets no one gets better at, at passing yeah. or kicking between one Saturday and sure. another. No one is able to squat, you know, significantly more one week than True. the other. But performance varies so much. Mm. And um, you know, and so you know, he described it as being you know mostly mental, mm. um, which is kind of mm. you know, obviously there's a huge base level that's required, mm. but performance can vary so much. It tends to be all that um, intangible stuff, mm. you know, not how far can you run, but what can you handle mentally. Mm. And and I, and I think you know, there are obviously ways to to get you know, you can train that like discomfort. Mm. Um, Cold water is a good one. I don't know if you've ever have you heard of Wim Hof or yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really into that sort of cold water stuff, <laughs> the cold immersion stuff. That's a good way to um, get used to being uncomfortable. Yeah, in, sure. In the cold, but um, I still, I'd much rather sit in an ice bath than I would um, run for 600 kilometres um, <laughs> <laughs> any day of the week. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. You're right. You know, it's a little bit of mongrel. It's a little bit of preparation. It's a little bit of practice mm. all those sort of things what is what is how do you prepare physically because again this is remarkable to to 95 percent of people that are listening mm. you know like you're training for these these sort of week-long events like you do pretty much like go out for a run and just i'll be back on tuesday sort of thing is that like what does it look like it, it it's it varies so much to be honest and you know even within our team, our training varies quite a lot. So, I mean, for our teammates, we just have that level of trust where people will go away and do what's required for the race and they just know, you know, they're experienced enough to know that this is the training they need to do um, to get the results they want. Years ago, when I first started event racing, we did used to do that. We used to, well, I used to do it. We used to go out and just smash ourselves like nonstop for like whole weekends and things. You know, I remember a story I've told a couple of times is that my wife and I out, for a dinner on a Friday night one time. And then it was getting late, people were ready to go home and, you know, someone said, oh, what are you doing for the weekend? And oh, I, I generally don't sort of tell people really what I'm up to, but in this instance, I sort of, because I thought I'd be honest with them. I said, oh, I've actually got my backpack in the car and uh, I'm going to head into the hills after dinner and do this tramp. And they were like, tonight? And I was like, yeah, 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 tonight. 
And they're like, well, that's going to take you like four or five days. I said, no, I'll be finished by Sunday. And I literally did. On the way home from the restaurant, my wife dropped me off and put my head torch on, my shoes on, pretty much ran all Friday night, ran all Saturday, all Saturday night, ran all day Sunday, and then my wife picked me up. And I used to do that, and my teammates didn't do it. But what I found was that after a few years of doing that sort of training, and I'm not saying we did this all the time. I might do like four or five of these a year. But what I found was is that they were quite exciting and fun when we first started doing them. So you're doing all this crazy stuff. And I think as far as self-belief goes, I think they're very valuable sessions because when you're out there doing those, you can easily tell yourself, my competitors are not doing this. This is giving me an edge over my competition because I know no one else is doing this, even though they might be, but they're probably not. And so we did them. But what I found was is that two things. One is is that you'd be written off pretty much for the whole rest of the week. So you might have done this amazing training session on the weekend, but you're actually rubbish for the rest of the week. And then the other thing I found was is that that sleep, sort of semi-sleep deprivation, swollen feet, mouth ulcers, the kind of things that you experience with ultra-endurance stuff is, is that the novelty wore off and I was getting to events and rather being excited about going racing all the night, I was dreading it because it was too fresh. I'd been doing this in a race. So then I changed my training. So for the last 10, 15 years, my training is generally, uh, I would describe it as I have a lifestyle level of fitness. Like I will try and do one or two hours exercise pretty much every day. And that for me is about mental and physical health. Like I'll do that even if I'm not racing. I'll just go for an hour, paddle, an hour run, or jump on my bike for a couple of hours. So for me, that's that's just about staying healthy. Like I believe the human body is designed to be active. And then if I'm lucky, I might extend that to three or four hours. Um, And then I'll do lots of adventures with our family. We'll go skiing and kayaking and rafting and doing all. So, So I have a very active lifestyle, always have and always will. And... So then about six weeks before a race, I'll try and clear my work calendar as much as I can. And then what I'm trying to do is about 20 to 30 hours of training a week, which is normally about four to six hours. And normally I would usually train two disciplines um, a day. So so a training day for me might be something like, I'll get up in the morning, I'll have a coffee, I'll check my emails, and then I'll go out running for say two or three hours. And then I'll come home, you know, maybe do some work around the property, more emailing because most of my work I do is from my office unless I'm in the field somewhere around the country. And then I'll go out and do another training session in the afternoon. And where possible, I would normally, my kids are older now, but I would normally try and fit my training hours into the school hours so that I was generally around when they got home from school to do stuff with them. So that was pretty typical. And then I would just do some extended training sessions. Like Occasionally I might go, well, I feel like I need to go and do a long bike ride. So I might go and do like a long bike ride to me is anywhere between probably six and ten hours head out for a long bike ride and maybe a long paddle and a couple of long runs but I've actually changed that for this year I decided that and that's one of the things with my training is is that I've always evolved it and changed and sort of grown and experimented and this year I decided that maybe it's inefficient to be training two disciplines a day maybe I'll be better off just doing one discipline a day and I've actually found that worked really well so I only have to get changed once and I go out and do a longer session and then come home, and then pretty much that's my training done for the day. So I quite like that. I, 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 it's still too soon to know if that's the model that yeah. <laughs> I would put on to other athletes, but um, that's worked really well. So I guess to throw a blanket over my training, it's generally lifestyle training. 
I try and stay active at least 10 hours a week and then closer to a race, you know, four to six weeks out, I would be doing, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week. And if I wanted to do a really big week, then it's probably more like about 50 or 60 hours, but they would be quite rare. And most of those hours would be made up of trekking, of hiking. Yeah. You know, and it's not hard to clock up hours when you're walking around in the mountains with a big pack on. You know, you could do 10 or 12 hour days. I mean, most people can do those. Yeah. Well, <laughs> most people, it depends on the people you hang out with, I guess. Oh, but I mean, yeah. I that's still a remarkable, you know, like to, you know, up to 50 to 60 hours a week. Obviously, that's heavy and you're training hard for an event then, but still, I'd say um, it's a remarkable amount. But I guess, you know, when you're doing a 100-hour race, that's sort of the stuff you need, exactly. to, be, need to be doing. Mm. Um, uh, funny story, well, I, you know, Six weeks ago, I didn't actually know who you were, if I'm completely honest. That's I'm good. embarrassed to say that. But, um, my wife did the spring challenge. And so um, we are down in town now and um, uh, they we did the registration and bits and pieces. She gets all her things. And then um, we're back at the house that night and there was obviously the team of three, um, three girls, and there was us three uh, support mm. husbands, partners there. And um, and we were sort of, they was just got their maps, so they were trying to do all, measure all their bits and pieces and we were sort of, um, you know, trying not to get in the way almost. And, and we thought we'll put on some motivation for them. So we jumped on, out of one of the boys, I'm not sure if it was Netflix or YouTube or something, so we put on, you know, Adventure Racing World Series. And we just sort of had it playing in the background. And then I was like, that sounds like a Kiwi accent. I was like, it's a Kiwi. Huh. And I was like, look at the screen. And I was like, oh man, now this is interesting. And so we sat and we got really involved and we watched this thing. And there wasn't any motivation for the girls there on the, oh, on, yeah. the, on, the, on, the on, on the maps and they were busy. But we watched this thing and I couldn't believe it. And then the next day we get to this this race and the girls are sort of starting and stuff. And then, <laughs> then I see you walk up and it was you that I was watching the night before. And there was about three of us there and we were all bit bloody starstruck, to be honest. We'd watched about three or four hours of, oh, your, of, the, of the documentaries the night before. I can't remember which one we did, like a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and then we saw you, and then that's when I walked over to you and said yeah. g'day, and we got a photo with you, like a real group of fans. Yeah. And then um, and I sort of said, "Are you still going?" And you said, "Oh, well, you know, you're still racing." And you said, "Oh, we just got back from Paraguay last week, and um, and and you'd won that." And so, you know, like uh, and then I went on to look up, you know, read about you, and research you, and that's obviously why I messaged you as well and also you know, a listener of the podcast asked mm. me to, to you'd, be, you'd be a good um conversation but the reason i'm saying that is is you know you you, you said it a couple times over you're 50 years old you know you've just you just won the sort of the the world champs again for the seventh time you know you're a reigning world champion like what's the sort of you know, is it getting harder as you get older? You're enjoying it more. Is it getting easier? Is it like are you, are you indefinitely committed to this? Like, what's the sort of do you have a plan? Uh, I wouldn't say it's getting harder or easier. I, I, if I was to be completely honest, and there's no reason why I can't be honest, is that I am not really noticing any thing about being fifty. I know I'm not the athlete that I was when I was thirty and possibly even 40, but for ultra endurance, I mean, I can go out and do the same training and my times for my training are pretty much about the same. Um, obviously top end speed's not there, like I know that, but I don't need that top end speed. And so I, I couldn't sort of say, oh, I'm retiring because I'm getting old and creaky and falling to pieces because I'm not. I think, but where we are at is, is that uh, – I think, you know, through COVID, one thing I actually have actually, one thing I've really enjoyed is just being in New Zealand and just having that time at home and with family and just my alone time doing the stuff I enjoy. And going to Paraguay last month was the first time I travelled overseas for 
three years and I didn't miss it. Hey, I didn't miss all the long haul flights and time in airports and security checks and all the hassle that goes through traveling. So my appetite to go traveling at the moment is very low. And our team is at an interesting place because the core team, you know, my children are growing up. They're 16, 18 and soon to be 20. They're all doing their own thing. Like my son's actually in Portugal at the moment at the junior world orienteering champs. And so I'm, I'm actually got quite a lot of free time and flexibility, but my other three teammates um, all have children, two young children each, and they're all aged between sort of one and six. So it's getting harder for them to train and make the time and to travel and to stay healthy. You know, it's like when young kids is you can, it's really difficult to just. Yeah. So I think because of that, I think we're at a point where, and, and, and also that, you know, to, if I was, again, like I mentioned it earlier on, like I, I just think, you know, with global warming and climate change, I mean, whatever your beliefs are, you know, the science is showing us that planes are, you know, are quite polluting. So I, I guess I'm just being a lot more mindful about, um, you know, my impact or, or contribution to the to the to, to global pollution, um, forgetting about climate change and all the rest of it. Mm. So I think there's a whole lot of reasons. You know, and then I'm, and there's also a lot of other things I'd like to do. Like I have been racing full on, really, for 30 years or something, and uh, I know that I can have a very rich and fulfilling life without competitive sport. And so I'm actually quite keen and open <laughs> to uh, wrapping things up, really. Um, when you know, sometime in the next, if I didn't do another expedition event race again, I'm, I, it's fine. I don't need to do any more. Um, if I got the opportunity to race again in that team, um, I would love that. But, uh, you know, it's up to my teammates and things and see if it works out. So, but uh, we're very much race by race. And I think that we may do, I think we'll do the God's Own race next year in New Zealand in February. We may go to the World Champs. It's a little bit tricky um, for me. It, it sort of falls right between our two spring challenge events. So, <laughs> Um, that's really sort of throwing a big kind of, uh, yeah, event Curve, right in the middle. Away, yeah. yeah, it's quite tricky. So I, I don't know really. Um, yeah, we're, we're definitely at a, at a, at a transition on, on things. And, you know, it's, it's getting harder as well to, to find interesting things to motivate myself. I guess for the level of training, I actually enjoy the training, which is the reason why I've been an athlete for my whole life. But, um, you know, like I've won this many world champs and I've won, so I went from six to seven or, I don't know, almost seven almost is a nicer number than eight, I would almost argue. So <laughs> do we try and win an eight? Or, uh, you know, it was nice to win one at 50. Mm -hmm. uh, at some point you got to go, where's a nice bookend yeah. for this story? Yeah. And... I, I don't think it would even. I don't honestly don't think it would worry me. But do I want a bookend of going, you know, getting smashed in a race or getting yeah, beaten? Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's like, well, what, what, what's it all about? So I, I don't think it would worry me at yeah. all if that happened. But yeah. at some point, at some point, um, yeah. And and I guess I, I guess the caveat I'll put on that is is that I'll I'll always be open to doing perhaps some more interesting teams. Like if any of my kids want to do an adventure race and say, well, I'm going to drag dad out because he seems to know what he's doing, they're not that great. I'll be happy to step up and, you know, go and do a social, well, what I would consider a social race where mm -hmm. the goals are really different. It's yeah. about this team's goal is to finish this race and, yeah. um, and enjoy it and 
sort of move through the course that way. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah, interesting. It's a, um, I mean, the you've obviously looked after your body extremely well. You know, like because you know the reason we mentioned rugby players before. The reason their 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 career span is you know is ten years <laughs> max is because their their bodies are are, are tired. It's high impact. Yeah, yeah, high impact. But you know, so is yours. You know, like I don't I don't surely you know, obviously you're not you know tackling other you know other people but you're still you know on your feet for hundreds of hours Mm. you know like i mean there'd be there'd be arguments you know valid arguments both ways and saying Mm. which one would be a harder pursuit on your body but regardless you obviously you know um, i'm sure your nutrition is 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 fairly you know have to be Mm. and you obviously exercise a lot and you're outdoors a lot and all these good things Mm. that we know that generally help with um you know with longevity and your performance um how have you know you talked about you know how have you done this with three kids you know you talked about your your teammates now having you know kids and and that's sort of being hard which is completely understandable you know like it's the, the you know and not saying that you are in any way but I've sort of found and learned and seen that sometimes when there's an individual pursuit when when an individual in a is trying to do something extreme it's almost a quite a selfish sort of thing you have to do you know like you know, you're talking about doing 50 or 60 hours of training a week and i'm sure that's not all the time you know but there's times and you know you try and fit 50 or 60 hours of of training around you know family around you know work you know whatever it is like it's a it's a it can be a tough thing to to juggle right mm. Yeah, it is. So how I've done it is a couple of reasons. Things. The first one is is that I have an incredibly supportive wife. Um, Jody and I have been together since we were teenagers. So we met at high school. So we have basically lived together and grown together. So we have essentially merged into one person, really, because we don't know a life when we were just teenagers when we got together. So all our sort of development years, I guess, as adults have been shared. Mm-hmm. So we are just kind of this one sort of being in many ways. It's quite strange. But I think because of that, you know, we have been, we have a very shared philosophy on things. And, you know, one of those philosophies is that you, we, we, we're strong believers that you create your realities. And so it's kind of like decide what you want to do and then make it happen. And so for me it was like I want to be, you know, the best event tracer in the world or certainly the best event tracing team in the world. So that was something I wanted to sort of embark on. And Jody's like, okay, well, yeah, together we're like, okay, well, let's, yep, let's let's try and make that happen and figure out how we can make it happen. And, I mean, I would I would never sort of make claims about, about my parenting in the sense that I think the only people that can really judge my parenting are my kids and... Um, you know, probably to a lesser degree as my, my wife, but Jody will say, and I've heard her say this many times, so these are her words, that I am excellent at making time for the family. So we do, we have done less now because kids are older, but we would prioritise family adventures and family time. Um, we are a fam- we don't have a TV, so our kids have grown up um, with very little gadget device time. We live rurally at a beach, so um, we have been a very active family. Uh, like I said, you mentioned before that, you know, throughout most of my career, I I would schedule my training around being home. So I, I would nearly always have breakfast with the kids and then have dinner with them as well. Like I would be home when they go home from school. So as soon as they went to school, I'd go training. I mean, so many days, 
you know, I would I would bike to school with my kids because we it was about two k down to the school. We'd bike down to school. I'd be in my riding gear. I'd carry on riding. I'd go over to Golden Bay or Collingwood or something, have a coffee and ride back, and pretty much get back to the school after a six-hour bike ride when they were about to ride home again. So they're none the wiser. Yeah. I've done a six-hour bike ride and yeah. I'm, I'm actually home again. Now, that was easy because I was a professional for many years, so that was my job. Mm-hmm. I was actually paid on a salary to train and race. Um, and then after that, we just started to sort of create, I guess, a lifestyle that would sort of support that. So, um, you know, we would just look at creative ways. I mean, I've always been quite entrepreneurial. And we would just think about, well, what what could we do to generate an income stream that will support the things that we want to do? And we've just managed to pull it off. And a lot of it would just be luck, I think. But a lot of it would be that we were probably very clear about what we wanted to do. So we set, we agreed on the vision. And then from there, it's like, okay, well, there's the vision. Now how do we make it happen? Someone said to me, I did a youth at-risk program when I was a teenager, and one of the things I took away from that is a couple of things that I took away from it that were very helpful. But one of the things was a sort of a careers advisor type character came along and said, in terms of going forward, you know, we're all sort of teenagers just trying to find our way. He said that to have a successful life, what you want to do, first thing you want to do is figure out what it is you want to do. The second thing is um, find someone to pay you to do it. So it was kind of a bit of a flip-flop for me that was quite interesting because it's kind of, oh, that's in the show looking at things. So I really adopted that. I was like, well, what is it that I really want to do? And I was like, well, I just want to be in the outdoors, really, just mucking around, just doing adventures. And then I was like, okay, well, well, that's definable. That's easy to measure. Now I need to find someone to pay me to do it. And that's what led me into outdoor education and adventure tourism. And then what then led me into professional sport, which then led me into um, event management and directing. So, obviously, yeah. yeah, natural progression. Mm. Yeah. And so let's talk about, you know, because obviously you run a few, um, you know, you've got a couple of businesses on the side now, which you run events as well. Um, I, I'm aware of a couple of them. Sounds like there's more than more than a few, though. Uh, there's only a couple now. I think our company runs four key events. We run three women's event racing, events races. Um, I started women's event racing in 2007. So that was kind of, there wasn't a thing uh, until then. And we started our events company in 2006, I think. And the trading name for our events company, which not many people will know, is called 10 Events. And we called it that largely because at the time when we launched it, we were running 10 events. So we used to run some ultra runs, some mountain biking, some paddling races. Uh, we had multi-sport races, event races. And the, the concept was, the business plan was, is that we would run... 10 events, each of the 10 events for three years. And then after the three years, we would basically just take the cream of those events and focus on those brands, but we would let the market decide. So Jodie and I had come from, she was a competitive um, mountain biker as well, but we'd done a number of different sports. So we had this sort of skill base that allowed us to run all these different events in these different areas of New Zealand and also these different essentially disciplines or environments. And then from that, we just sort of said, well, let's see what the market wants. And after those three years, the the market that had spoken the most was New Zealand event racing women. And so we sort of became this company that specialised in providing outdoor opportunities and adventure opportunities for women, which is largely still what we do. Mm-hmm. And then we run, so now we run four events, three of them are women's event races, and we're launching a new event race in December this year in Franz Joseph called True West, which is an event race for anyone, so men and women. And then we just do some smaller local things. We just help out a lot with 
you know, local events where we can. Mm-hmm. And was there a, a food company in there as well at some stage? There is. So also now a, a founder and one of the business partners for a food company called Real Meals, which is a freeze-dried food company. So we make food for primarily for adventure. Yeah. So we're staying in that area of expertise. So just tr- it's largely for trampers and hunters. It's just uh, the food that you basically boil some water, tap it in, yeah. leave it for 10 minutes and then go. But how that came about really was is that, you know, I've been using freeze-dried food since, well, not since it began because I think the astronauts were using it on the Apollo missions. But when I first got into tramping, you know, near 20 or so years ago, I started using freeze-dried food, but I've always found that to be pretty substandard and mediocre. And then, you know, some years ago, uh, we started to explore this, you know, question really is why does freeze-dried food have to taste bad? Mm-hmm. And then one thing led to another and we realised that it actually doesn't. So our company at Real Meals, we use a different processing technique to, we think, every other freeze-dry company in the world. So it enables us to create what I think uh, and our customers believe now too, um, you know, like, like like something that has the world's never seen before. So it's like premium freeze-dry food really. Yeah. Wow, amazing. Um, and the, your events are obviously the Spring Challenge? We have two Spring Challenge events, a yeah. South Island and a North Island. And then our South Island event got so big a few years ago that we were turning so many people away that we started another event called the Summer Challenge, which is essentially the same but different season. And then, yeah, we've got this event, True West, which is happening, a new event that we're just launching in December. Wow, amazing, huh? Mm. That's such a cool cool story. And to be able to, you know, it's still all just aligns with your your passion and your vision and what you're trying to do. It's great. Was it ever, um, you know, you talked about being professional and, and, and being able to get paid for it. You also mentioned at the start, like, you know, one of the key core elements of this was being able to put in place uh, the ability for it to be, you know, to generate the money because I'm sure like there's, with that, just the pure you know, geographic location of these events, they can't be uh, cheap. Has it been hard to get sponsorship and, and money for this sort of stuff? Like are you, is there funding, like government funding for it or is it, is it, is it prize money? Is it a mixture of everything or is it, you know, is it, is it sponsorships that, that have helped you? Largely sponsorship. So we don't get any government's funding. As far as Sport NZ are concerned, event racing is not a sport, uh, and that's because it's not under any official federation. It is, it kind of is now, and it will be going forward, but up until now it hasn't been. It's largely just been a sport that has just been run by um, commercial operators. Probably the common model I'd compare it to is probably Ironman. And so essentially it's just a brand and a commercial mm-hmm. entity that runs the sport. So event racing has been very similar. And yeah, so I was, the prize money used to be really good. When I first started event racing, you know, we could go to a race and win a big race, you know, we could come home with a couple hundred thousand dollars. So that was really good because at the time I was like an outdoor instructor. And so I could go away and win a race and make twice in one week what I'd make for a whole year of being an outdoor instructor. And then, so that was quite good money. And then some years were much better than others because, you know, we were racing sometimes five or six times a year and we were more often than not earning US dollars. So we'd often double our money. I remember one funny story where we were really good mates with the team, the Nike team. And 
they beat us in a race and we got, they won and we got second and, you know, the prize money and things. But when I got home and converted the US dollars to New Zealand dollars, I actually had more usable money than they did. Yeah. So I made, made sure I contacted my mate in the yeah. States. <laughs> I, <didn't know. laughs> I was yeah. like, you know yeah. that money you won? Well, I've actually got more than yeah. you. Uh, so that was quite good. And then, and then sponsorship. So to, it is, a, it is, it is pretty expensive sport to do. Like we generally budget on about $25,000 US to do an international race. Um, some some cost more, some cost less. And the reason why I quote that in US dollars is because our corporate sponsors have always been US companies. I was sponsored by Seagate Technology for a number of years and then that sort of merged into our current sponsor called Avaya, which are two tech companies in the States, quite similar companies, and they, they kind of helped us um, pretty much that they managed that transition actually between Seagate and Avaya. And that's been incredible. That has been incredible for me because not only have they provided us the support we needed to go and do what we've done um, in sport in our sport, but for me personally, I became good friends with a number of the, the executives at the top of the company just because they had a real interest and passion in adventure racing and were using a lot of the, I guess the key values from adventure racing uh, and their sort of corporate values. So there was some quite good synergy there. So they sort of became mentors for me and have helped me over the years and the other things I was doing, you know, that essentially sitting me down going, look, Nathan, you can't be a racer for the whole life. You know, how, what are you going to do and how are you going to spend your prize money wisely and sort of coach me through some other stuff. So adventure racing has been incredibly good for me and my family. And, and, I'm, and, and that's why I sort of feel like, you know, I, I like to think, I'd like to think that Jody and I are really generous um, with our time, energy and, and, and what sort of flowed to us. And that's why we'd like to put a lot back into events. And I like to sort of try to help my teammates where I can, creating opportunities to go racing and, you know, coaching people where I can and, and doing different things because we have been incredibly lucky. And, uh, yeah, it was, well, it wouldn't feel right just to... yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, luck's always part of it, but you've got to be, you've got to, you know, your 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 work ethic has to meet the opportunity. You know, luck luck presents the opportunity, but it's mm. it's it's the you know the ability to grab it and have a go mm. is, is is just as important, mm. I mm. think. So you can't yes. sort of blame all that on on luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, you know, a bit of a side note, um, you you've had uh, atrial fibrillation. I, I've had that a few times as well. Oh. So I heard that. Um, have, huh. I, have you had enough? So anyone listening, atrial fibrillations are your heart sort of drops out of its regular rhythm mm. and, and feels pretty odd and you get pretty tired and mm. um have you had you've had an operation three three yeah yeah so i've had three what they call ablation procedures to my heart first one i was in the early 2000s if i think i remember rightly and that didn't work and then i had another one in 2005 which did work and then that worked for about 10 years and then the condition came back in about 2015 I think roughly speaking I might be yeah, getting my years yeah, wrong yeah. and then I had another ablation then and that one has worked until now so your heart has worked until now it's still working yep yep <laughs> um, uh, uh, so your heart will jump some but what happens with me is um, is it would it would go out and I had the cardio version so they they, they, they give oh, yeah. you the, the clear poof, and then yep. I just sort of reset my heart yes. back into its normal rhythm but yours is out for a, a while is it mine would always go back into rhythm naturally mm -hmm. after a period of time uh, when I first had it 
I could often reset it by having a cold shower or jumping into cold water mm-hmm. or shocking it basically. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes just getting my heart rate down. So if I had it during exercise, sometimes I would just stop if I was cycling or whatever, just lie down on the side of the road, yeah. you know, for 15 minutes and okay. just get my heart rate back down to resting and often it would just reset. But the last time I was having it was in roughly around that 2015 period or 2014. And that was quite weird because that was different because that wasn't resetting using those ways mm-hmm. I'd used before. And I could have it sometimes for a few days. Okay. And then yeah. it would naturally go back into sinus rhythm after that. But it was really, really uh, tiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just feel off, don't you? It's hard to yeah, hard to fathom. My, um, yeah, I got mine from uh, from water skiing very early in the morning in cold water. So I uh, jumped in the water um, and then uh, with the water skiing, it's sort of, you know, you're in the water floating with nothing yes. engaged and then all of a sudden Boom. the power comes on and every muscle on your body goes. Wow. And, and then um, generally if I'd had a drink or two the night before as well. Yes. Um, and then obviously alcohol is not good. It's like a toxin in there. Mm. And so I guess it was like a, a cold motor in a car, huh. you know, and then just turning it, you know, being sure. in cold water and then trying to turn it on and, and go flat out straight wow. away, which is pretty much happening. And then... Um, but each time I've, I've had a, a cardio, I've had it twice now, a cardio version. This has been wow, able, to, been able wow. to fix it. But it's a weird old thing. It's a bit scary when it's your heart, isn't it? You sort of, you know, you break an arm and you're like, oh, yeah, I can see my arm, it's broken. And it'll, you know, they'll put it in a cast. Mm. I wasn't sure what was going on for the first time. And then um, I had the, exa- the exact same circumstances the second time. Mm. Like same same things. Mm. And the doctor said, well, why don't you just stop? water skiing first thing in the morning mm. if you've had a drink the night before. And so I haven't done that and I've never had it again. Mm. So, huh. yeah. Well, I've heard of people that have had it that have that actually go for a really strenuous um, like activity and that actually resets it, <laughs> weirdly enough, you know. So everyone's obviously different. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Hey, to just finish off, I've got, I've got three questions I sort of ask everyone, which is a, a nice way to end it because I'm appreciative and conscious of your time. Sure. Um, what's next? That's my next question. What's next for me? Yeah, I mean, like you've done, you know, you're sort of you've maybe talked about it a little bit, but you know, you've you've you're seven-time world champion. You've got a few different businesses. You've got three teenage kids. You've got a lovely wife, a beautiful spot up in the in, in, in Tasman there. Mm. Like, um, is it you're going to push the businesses harder? Or are you going to? Well, I think for me. What's next, and some of my friends will laugh at this if they listen to the show, is I recently got into hunting. So I didn't know this, but my wife brought me through a conspiracy with one of my friends. <laughs> she brought me a rifle for my 50th birthday, which was in April, a hunting rifle. And so I've subsequently got my hunting license and I've been out on a couple of hunting trips literally just this in the last month. And so I'm super excited about it. Um, so obviously I love spending time in the mountains and I've been on hunting trips all of my life, but I've never actually been a hunter myself. So so I do have this new thing that I'm pretty excited about. I'm probably okay to admit that I don't have much of a moderator, moderating kind of character. So when I get into something, I go pretty hard. So <laughs> yeah, I'm, pretty keen, <laughs> I'm pretty keen to hit this hunting business pretty hard. Um, I also, there's a number of different things I enjoy. Like I, I do a lot of ocean sport, um, surf ski paddling, ocean paddling is one of my real passions. I'm out on the water in summer just about every day because we live at the beach 
and uh, do quite a bit of kiteboarding. If my son's keen, he's, he's quite into it. My youngest daughter does a bit too, actually. So I've got all these different sports that I sort of love to do. So I think in terms of going forward, what's next for me, it's it's really just kind of just doing more of what I really enjoy. Yeah. But I think bigger picture than that, you know, if I was to ask myself why I'm working so hard at the moment, I think about, I, I know the reason why, and, and that's because of my children. And I just feel like I have a responsibility. You know, Jodie and I obviously chose to have children, um, that we owe it to them to support them as much as we can on their journeys through life and, I just want to be able to, you know, give them, uh, you know, I guess what they need to be happy and healthy in, in their lives, whatever that may be. And like I mentioned before that my son is, you know, he's in Portugal right now and and I just feel that it's great that Jody and I have managed to get ourselves in a position where we can support him um, to do the things that he wants to do. And uh, obviously he's doing super well. All, all our kids are doing great in the different fields, but, you know, it's not cheap to go orienteering in Portugal and so for me you know I just want to make sure that over the next sort of few years or so I mean if we didn't have children I would I'd retired I'd just be hunting now um, but <laughs> you know I just I guess it's just sort of future proofing things for them a bit and and um, the family legacy and yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's it's more than um, I'm not saying you said this, but it's more than money. Not only are you you're working hard to put them in a position to be able to do things, but you're also I think the example that you set as a parent by working hard is just as valuable. Mm. You know, I don't think yes, yes, it, it gives you need a level of financial ability to be able to fund them to do. Mm. Certain things, but secondly, the I think even the greater benefit that you show them by working hard is that you know they can do what they want if mm. they work hard. You totally. know, and, and I think that um, you know when they see what's possible through your behaviour and actions and results, that that then gives them that's the teaching them to fish mm. as well mm. as giving them the fish. You know, mm. and it's kind of a kind of mm. a bit of both. And yes. so, I think that's a um, you know that's mm. probably another reason that mm. you know. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It is. It is. It is largely. It is, you know, I agree. I get what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. What are you most proud of? You know, like even a quick look at your website will, will have a number of things that anyone would be be proud of. But you know, you, you've obviously done lots of different things. You've, you know, you're 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 at a stage now where you're doing a lot for you know the adventure racing community, for your own community, for your own family. Um, you know, is there, you know, is there something when you reflect now? And sit back and look at it. They go, man, I'm really proud that I've done this or did that. Or the thing that comes to mind when you ask me that, and and this is something that I do practice. I mean, I, I think as a person, I it's important for me to practice gratefulness and that you know not to take things for granted because I know actually what it's like uh, when things aren't going well. Like I've had that heart condition and as an athlete having to battle with a heart condition, which yeah, I was never really that worried about it from a safety point of view, but just in terms of a performance and lifestyle and being able to do the things I want to do, is that was what scared me. was like, man, I, I might not be able to do the things that I'm really passionate about. And so when you've been, I guess, prevented and limited and governed by those things, uh, when you're actually healthy, like when I've got a healthy heart, like most days I, I I'll, at some point during the day, I'll be thankful that my heart is working normally. 
and that I can go and do the things I want to do because I know what it's like not to be able to do those things and I know that it's not good for me. And and so that's that's important for me. And so, you know, I... And the other one that I little look back on my life that that I am really proud of is is that the, the flexibility. So I have a huge amount of um, flexibility over what I want to do, and and I don't take that for granted either because that is such an amazing opportunity. And so, an, an example is is that I mean I'm obviously in Christchurch today, and I'm flying home this afternoon. I mean, I can go and do whatever I want to this afternoon. And I don't even really know. I've got nothing planned for the rest of the week. Um, I was hoping to go hunting actually tomorrow and the next day, but the weather's bad. So in order to have that flexibility, and it's not because I don't work. I'm not retired, but I've just created a life where I can move things around and I can condense my work or go through a period of intensity and then that'll create a period of space or whatever mm. it might be. And, and that, that I just... I couldn't imagine living in, yeah. uh, differently, but for me, that's really a really, really big thing. Is is uh, and, and I'm proud of. I'm, I'm proud of that. Like yeah. I'll get up some mornings and go, I'm healthy and I can do what I want today. Yeah. Um, good on you, Nathan. Yeah, you know you've done well. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, freedom of time is what we're all really after, right? You know, like the ability to control where and when you spend your time mm. and who with. Mm. You know. Um, and the, the health thing, yeah. It's interesting as human beings, we often don't recognise how lucky we are until we either find out we could lose it or we lose a part of it, you know, mm. like it's with your health. Like, yeah, how often do you not take anything for granted and then all of a sudden something happens? Mm. Oh, my goodness, you know. Mm. It's, um, but, yeah, again, I mean, it comes mm. back to your leadership lesson, right, perspective. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe one thing I'll just quickly sneak in there as well is, is that I know that, I know that people can listen to podcasts. I, I really enjoy listening to podcasts and sometimes I'll listen to someone and I'll just go, mate, you've just, you know, you're, you're out of touch with reality. You've just had this amazing stroke of luck and things have just worked your way. You know, that's not like, that's not the same for everyone. But I would definitely say that, you know, no, I'm, no one is immune to, um, I guess, tragedy happening in their lives. You know, and I went through a really tough period when I was a teenager and, you know, so I lost my parents when they were relatively young. My mother was killed in a tragic car accident. And in that accident, um, you know, my father had a heart attack and he was in intensive care for a long time. My nephew was in the car. He, he technically drowned but was resuscitated and survived. But, you know, it, I, I guess why I'm saying that is, is that it, I just don't want people to sort of listen to this and go, oh, this guy's just walked through life with a silver spoon. It's kind of like, you know, I've had to overcome, you know, some really hard things as well. And uh, How old were you in the car crash? Uh, I wasn't an adult. I would have been I would have been in my 40s, um, early 40s, I guess. But, um, you know, so I, I my mum had taught me everything that, you know, she would have wanted to teach me, I think, in many ways. But I think the real tragedy in that is losing someone suddenly is, is that, there's a whole lot of stuff that you thought you, at some point you would say to that person and then they're gone. And for me, the the really sad thing, you know, and, you know, um, is, is that she had so much to give to my children and her grandchildren. That, that to me, was the big loss. You know, I sort of felt like, you know, she'd done her job with me, but because um, she was a, a preschool teacher for her career. So she was basically small kids was her specialty. Mm-hmm. So grandchildren for her was like the... 
you know, was the thing really. That's what she'd been waiting for. And and so well, I sort of felt like my brother and sisters, all our all our little kids, all the all our children sort of lost their you know, lost that. Um they get it through you, though. They do, they do, and 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 and, and that's, that's dead right. And that's what I realised at that time of grieving is is that I needed to step up and and live more of my mum, yeah, and through them. So yeah, you do, but yeah, it's just kind of yeah. I mean, um, look, I don't think anyone thinks that you've got a silver spoon in your mouth. <laughs> I, mean, I think that you know the the. Yeah, your journey's been you know far from that, um, and everyone has adversity. You know, yes. I, I think the way I look at it now, um, I think that adversity at the time, although seemed so senseless, and obviously you wouldn't wish it upon anyone, and even yourself. I think in going through challenges and overcoming obstacles, mm. that ends up actually making us stronger like a mm. bone is stronger after yes. it's broken and I think emotionally we're the same right yeah. I think that you know even though you don't wish it to happen it's an overcoming that that mm. you add another sheath to your armor mm. you know and and that's another mm. another thing you can help your children with mm. or, or, or whoever else yes, it is yeah, you know? that's right. and so um adversity is inevitable it's mm. about sort of equipping yourself and, totally. and those you love to be able to deal with it yeah, yeah. in times when they need yeah. to and when you need to and it's yeah. a lot easier said than done but mm. um, I think that you know mm. challenge is actually a good thing and, and uh, you know uh, putting yourself in situations that, that do test you mm. you know obviously you don't choose some of the things that happen to us but yeah. ultimately they um, you grow because of it totally totally and especially in our I agree and especially in our you know, I mean, we're, we're just, you know, we're so sheltered here that, um, you know, I think so many people don't really probably fully understand, you know, how some other people are living around the planet. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's important Perspe- to have that. Perspective again, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. One last thing to finish up. Cool. What do you wish everyone knew? Right, if, if the entire planet was going to listen to the next 60 seconds of this and it was going to be some advice or wisdom, from you because you do seem very wise and you've done some pretty <laughs> you do pretty incredible things and I think you've got a cool perspective on the world and um and the way you've lived your life if you could whisper into the ears of the world what would you say I think that people underestimate the impact of connecting with nature and being in the wilderness so and I know this because I'm often out in the wilderness areas and I'm the only one there. So it's kind of like, well, where is everyone? <laughs> Unfortunately, um, they're probably caught up in the rat race and they're lining up at Kmart to buy the next latest big screen TV or the latest iPhone. And I just think that the wilderness, Mother Nature, has so much to teach us. And I honestly think that certainly the modern world or the world that we live in would be a much better and healthier place if people understood the what they could actually gain from that connection with nature because we are essentially a wild creature. We've, we've become pretty domesticated, but this is not actually our natural environment. We are actually meant to be out in the forest and sleeping on the ground and cooking from fires and drinking from streams living in communities and working together as teams to forage and hunt and survive. And I still think that just little bits, even homeopathic doses of that 
in people's modern life is an incredible reset button. And it comes back to this word that I've now overused in this podcast of perspective. But I really do think that um, when you're out in the wilderness and you're sitting amongst some trees that are literally hundreds of years old and you're sitting on a rock that's a couple of million years old, that problem that you had that morning is actually insignificant. And I think that's, to me, what the wilderness can teach you. And also just the, it can also, what I really like about it is it really teaches us to live in the moment and be present in that moment. So when I go out surf ski paddling, as an example, you know, if it's high wind and I'm paddling into the wind and I'm in a very unstable kayak and I'm on the sea and, you know, there's seabirds and there's fish and, and I'm getting salt water sprayed on my face and the wind's blowing and I cannot think about anything other than staying upright in my boat and paddling to wherever I'm paddling to turn around to paddle home or whatever it is. And you just, I honestly think, and it's not even, that people do work differently, deal differently with stress. But for me, I know that my personality type is, is that that is a stress relief for me. So I guess the point is though, as, as I'm saying, is that connecting with nature and being in the wilderness is not about doing an extreme sport. You don't have to be mountain biking and doing something. It can just be going and sitting or just, just being out in space, you know, in that nature. And, uh, yeah, I just I just think it's incredibly valuable. And, and, and there's proven outcomes from it. It's not like this is just me in some fantasy land. Um, but for whatever reason, there's just not enough people who know that. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. The, the, the fact that you know the the hills are empty and the the malls are busy <laughs> is probably a um, yeah a testament to that. Nathan, thank you so much for this. Thank you for making the time. I'm so glad we got to do this in person. I appreciate your your time, effort, energy, wisdom, and um, I look forward to continuing to follow your journey. Brilliant. Thanks, Matty. I really enjoy, I really enjoyed the chat. So it's good to be here. A lot of fun. Thanks, Nathan. And there we go, Nathan Favai. Far out. That was not what I was expecting, if I was honest. And if I'm if I'm completely honest, I was expecting to speak to someone that was a little bit nutty. You know, I thought someone that goes out and does 100-hour races for enjoyment was going to be a little bit different. But as you just heard, what an incredible guy. You know, very thoughtful, incredibly wise, um, you know, a, a wholesome family man, clearly a great leader as well. You know, I didn't really think about adventure racing being a team sport and obviously he sort of led his team and, and the way he thinks about leadership now, it's um, it's no wonder that, you know, he's been able to run successful businesses as well. So look, I'm really, really thankful for Nathan's time, making the time today. I'm also thankful for you for checking out the Road to Success podcast. As always, you know, I always say this and it's a bit of a cliche now, but, you know, I, I, I love getting to chat with people like Nathan. You know, I, I really, really enjoy that conversation. And if you don't listen, then I don't get to have the conversation. So thank you so much. And if you did take something out of today, if you could do one of three things, that would be amazing leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcast that helps the the podcast grow alternatively if you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it right now just hit the subscribe button and you'll get notified as soon as we release a new episode and the last thing would to be share 
this episode. You know, if you think you know someone that might enjoy listening to uh, some insights from uh, a seven-time world champion adventure racer and a bloody amazing human being, then uh, tell them to go and check out the Road to Success podcast wherever they listen to their podcast or, again, where, where you're listening to it right now. There'll be a share button. Just hit it and send it directly to them. So thank you so much for checking out the podcast. Of course, thank you so much to Nathan for making the time today. What a great and inspirational human being. And until next time, love ya, see ya, bye.